welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Welcome, everyone. My name is Allie, and I am the youth director here at Bethany Covenant Church. Thank you for tuning in today. This sermon is a continuation of our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. So let's pray as we dive in. Loving Father, we open our hearts to hear what you would say to us today. Amen. So for you movie buffs, The Devil Wears Prada was an early 2000s Meryl Streep Anne Hathaway romantic comedy. Meryl Streep plays this demanding, high-powered fashion designer, and Anne Hathaway plays her new assistant. Brilliant, but not very fashionable. One day, Meryl Streep pulls Hathaway into her office to reprimand her for some faux pas, and as Hathaway is attempting to explain, Streep interrupts her with a very odd question. Where do you keep your ketchup? Hathaway is confused, but answers slowly, in the refrigerator? Street presses her, why? After all, when you buy your ketchup in the store, it sits on the shelf unrefrigerated. So why do you keep it in the refrigerator? Hathaway reluctantly answers, well, because the label says to. Where do you keep your ketchup? Feel free to share that answer with me sometime because I am actually genuinely curious. I have thought about that question often. I still keep my ketchup in the fridge. Instead of risking my ketchup going bad or trying to scientifically determine if my ketchup is indeed shelf-stable, I choose to accept what the manufacturer tells me, believing that they know their product best. I have considered the source, and I have decided to trust them. And we do this literally every single day. We trust the sources of our food, that it's been properly handled and won't make us sick. We trust the source of our air, that it's safe to breathe, never something to take for granted. We trust the system that sources our traffic lights, that when my light is green, your light is red. We trust the engineers who maintain our airplanes and the pilots who fly them, etc., etc. We place our faith in the source because the vast majority of the time, on a consistent basis, they prove to be trustworthy. And throughout this sermon series, we have first and foremost considered the source of the fruit of the Spirit. We have discussed how the fruit is intricately and inextricably connected to the character of Christ. God is the very source and definition of these fruit. And just like we cannot understand them apart from God, we also cannot understand them apart from each other. Following our diamond imagery, these character traits are all facets of love. The fruit of the Spirit is just love lived out in different situations. God's love is shown through me when I seek to prioritize peace in disagreement when I persevere when my patience is tested, when I see the needs of others and try to meet them with kindness, when I listen and care generously. Today, we consider what it looks like to love faithfully, 
And so we must start with the source of faithfulness. I've discovered lately that I really enjoy finding the patterns in things. And throughout the Bible, two patterns parallel each other. Our, or humanity's, lack of faithfulness and God's consistent faithfulness to us. When the future seems uncertain, we tend to trust our own ideas instead of God. In such moments, we tend to forget what it means to be the people of God. Just a couple of examples, Adam and Eve. They believed that God was withholding something from them. So they trusted their decision to eat the fruit rather than trust God's warning that it wasn't good for them. They forgot that to be God's people meant to obey his words. Abraham and Sarah, they believed that their time to have their own child was running out, so they trusted their decision to use a surrogate. They forgot that God keeps his promises. We can look at the Israelites a number of times, but First and foremost, perhaps, the moment that they believe that Moses has died up on Mount Sinai while getting the Ten Commandments, so they trust their own decision to build a golden calf idol. And they forget that to be the people of God means to worship God alone. We can look at Jonah, who believed that God was unfairly showing mercy to those who didn't deserve it. He trusted his own wisdom and judgment forgot that being God's people meant sharing God's grace with the whole world. Could easily keep going with examples from our Bible where the faithfulness of God's people failed. (laughs) And with the benefit of hindsight, I really wish I could judge their fickleness. I really do. I wish that I could roll my eyes and say, seriously, how have they already forgotten how God provided for them? How on earth could they imagine that they knew better than God? But I can't judge because I see it in myself all the time. Reading through my prayer journals is uh, one of my favorite and least favorite activities. Least favorite because if you were to read them, you'd see how often I freak out about things. A meeting, a relationship, a financial situation, a project, a decision, etc., You'd see how quickly I imagine the worst, how quickly I rely on myself to fix it, which never works, by the way. But the beauty of this pattern is that what immediately follows the unfaithfulness of God's people is God's faithfulness. In our Bibles, God is angry, saddened by his people's choices, but he never gives up on them never walks away, never takes back the promise he made or changes the way he acts towards them. In every single instance, he sticks with them. He loves them faithfully by showing them limitless patience, unwarranted kindness, and abundantly generous goodness. It's why reading my prayer journals is also one of my favorite activities. Because two days or maybe two years later, I can see how God has stuck with me. I can look at whole seasons of my life and see how, though I have failed to love him or others faithfully, God has still loved me faithfully. 
How has God's love been faithful to you? What failings of yours, what situation or trial has he patiently, kindly, and generously stuck with you through? And if you don't feel that you have a personal experience of God's faithfulness, well, now might be a great time to do some research. If social distancing has left you with a little extra time on your hands, open up a Bible. These Bible stories that I gave are just a starting point. Look for the promises that he made at the beginning of the Bible and how they were fulfilled by his sending Jesus. Look for uh, the promises that he has made to us about salvation, about how he provides, how he will always be with us, etc. Any one of our church staff would be happy to talk through that with you to help you discover those promises. There is literally no one more faithful than our God. The reality is that God is faithful and we are not. The Israelites' faithfulness failed the moment that they imagined the worst. And we are so very conditioned to do that in our world. I was in ShopRite the other day, and it was a bit of a um, social experiment to see which shelves were cleaned out. Bread. Interestingly enough, all varieties of canned tomatoes. That was unexpected. And of course, toilet paper. And the toilet paper thing is a little confusing to me. I mean, we know that coronavirus affects the top half of our bodies, not the bottom half. Seems to me we should be stocking up on tissues, not toilet paper. But if I had to take my best guess at the psychology behind this hoarding of toilet paper, I would imagine it was because people heard that others were stocking up on toilet paper, and then they imagined how terrible it would be if they ran out of toilet paper and couldn't go buy more. And so everyone made sure to add just a little bit more to their shopping cart. And that little more has added up, and so now all the shelves are wiped clean. No pun intended. And this just-in-case behavior has caused all sorts of strife and difficulty. We've heard about the grocery store limits and the fights in store checkout lines. If fear of running out of toilet paper causes all this, imagine the damage that is caused when we start to fear or expect the worst in our relationships with others. I think one of the most startling ways that this shows up in my generation is the rise of the prenup agreement before people get married. Contracts laying out how everything will be divided and arranged just in case a couple gets divorced used to be a thing only for the rich and famous. But the percentage of millennials agreeing to prenups increased 62% between 2013 and 2016 alone. But before you roll your eyes at those millennials, listen to the statistic. Many millennials are children of divorce, making them predisposed to protecting their interests. This generation watched the faithfulness of those that raised them fail. They learned through experience that the worst was possible even in the most dedicated relationship. 
that even a marriage could end in an ugly and hurtful fashion. Expecting the worst of people causes us to be stingy with our love. Rather than love with peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, we withhold it from others because we don't want to waste it where it is undeserved or where it could be taken advantage of. As a result, the worst we imagined actually comes to be because we have not invested in a different outcome. The thing at a root level that keeps us from loving faithfully is a failure to go all in. We settle for prepared for the worst instead of invested in the best. But in Luke chapter 19, Jesus calls us to invest in loving others. Jesus said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want him to be our king. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted you, so you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then turning to the others standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, they said he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now the crowd hearing this story from Jesus would immediately recognize the parallels to a very recent political scenario. Herod went to Rome to receive his kingship from Caesar and returned to rule over Judea. But his son, Archelaus, many years later made a similar journey to Rome to be made king, and he was unsuccessful. Instead of returning to rule, he was banished. So this journey that the nobleman takes in this parable is known to the listeners as fraught with uncertainty for the servants left behind. Will he be successful and return? Or will he fail and someone else be put in charge? These servants who are given 10 pounds of silver and the charge to invest it while I'm gone have a challenging choice to make. The unfaithful servant imagined the worst, that the king would not return 
or would return without his power. And then the unfaithful servant imagined being seen as backing the wrong horse. It was risky to be associated relationally and financially with the king. Perhaps he saw holding on to the money as preparedness, trusting that he was being wise and waiting to see how it all played out. And he actually attempts to cover up his lack of faithfulness to his duties by expressing concern about the character of the king. And what's up with this king? Why do the servants not want him to be king? Well, it's actually not the point. The negative sense that we have of the king's character from this parable is not about the king, but about the unfaithful servant, who is likely meant to be understood as the Jewish leaders who opposed Jesus and the way he did things at every turn. This parable is not about the king, but about the servants. It's about the way they understood him and the way they acted as a result. The faithful servants took the risk, expecting that the king would return successful. They faithfully invested the funds in projects that would benefit the king and his kingdom upon his return. They chose to buy in not merely to the reality they could see, but a vision of the future that could be. The unfaithful servant did not. Luke records Jesus telling this story while at Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, a man who earned his wealth by cheating people. But his experience with Jesus prompted him to return his wealth to those in need. And Jesus says, learn from him. A man, a sinner whose changed heart leads him to care for the needs of the poor. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. As Jesus is journeying closer to Jerusalem, where he knows he will die, the urgency in his teaching grows. The time for explanation is growing smaller, and the time to make a decision has arrived. Jesus says, this is the kingdom I came to establish. Are you in or are you out? Jesus is calling us in this parable to buy into his vision for the kingdom of God. He defines faithfulness as investment into the kingdom mission, which is love. God's love, faithfully shown to us over time and meant to be extended to others, including the least, the lost, and the unfaithful. Faithfulness is love all in. So what does it look like for us to love faithfully? Well, the key here is to recognize that the king did not reward the servants for being successful, but for being faithful. If the servants were successful, we might imagine that they would have been rewarded with a big financial bonus or an all-expenses-paid vacation. But first and foremost, the faithful servants are given more responsibility. They are tasked with continuing to further the king's interests, not their own. In our Bibles, Joseph, Mary's husband, is actually a great example of loving faithfully. That man's life was irrevocably changed the moment that his fiancée announced she was pregnant with the Messiah. 
No one would blame him for taking the socially acceptable out and divorcing Mary. Choosing to stay with her would mean a lifetime of embarrassment and shame in their small community. But when God showed up to Joseph in a dream, declaring that Mary is telling the truth, Joseph chooses to stay. His future was uncertain, but rather than trusting his own wisdom, he trusted God. He chose to continue to faithfully love Mary, not for the glory of raising the Son of God. It's likely that Joseph did not live to see much, if any, of Jesus' ministry. Now, Joseph would take on this tremendous responsibility, not for any reward, except that he caught the vision that God was up to something. He loved faithfully by buying into what God was doing. Mother Teresa, a woman who dedicated decades to caring for the needs of the dying outcasts on the streets of Calcutta, India, was once asked why she invested so much into individuals for whom there was no hope of healing. Her answer, I'm not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. Loving faithfully will not always gift us with a reward, recognition, or appreciation. Loving faithfully will not necessarily yield results we will ever see. Others will fail us. There will be moments that others are undeserving of our love. But as those who are undeserving and yet are consistently on the receiving end of God's faithfulness, our call is to stick with, to step in, to believe the best, not imagine the worst, to invest with hope in others. In Paul's infamous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, he declares that love never gives up. It's always hopeful. Love endures every circumstance. So how can your love be more faithful? Do you need to be more generous with your love? In this time of social distancing, is that being willing to give of your time? to really listen to someone and how they're feeling? Is it choosing to give something instead of holding on to something just in case? Is it saying thank you instead of pointing out fault or complaining? Does your love need to be more patient? We are about to spend potentially a whole lot more time with our families than we are used to, and they may start to get on our nerves. How will your love persevere? How can we be more patient with those who act selfishly or fearfully during this time? Does your love need to be more kind? Not nice, not merely friendly, but eyes open to the real need and how you might be equipped to meet that need in even the smallest way. Could that be offering to pick things up from the grocery store uh, for your neighbor because you're already making a trip? or leaving an encouraging note for someone who lives alone near you? In what situation does your love need to be more peaceful, seeking the best for another? Maybe it means refraining from gossip and committing instead to change your perspective of that person by praying for them? 
Maybe it means adding positivity to internet conversations instead of negativity. When we choose to do these things in the moment that is easier to simply focus on our own needs and feelings, these are the moments that our love is beginning to be faithful. And we must examine the quality of our love for others, not out of obligation, but because we believe in something bigger. Do we actually believe that if we love others faithfully, bought into Jesus' kingdom mission, that our world will look entirely different? Because by loving faithfully in even the smallest imperfect ways, we are redefining love no longer in our image, fallen and faithless, but in God's image, faithful. We, the church, are a gathering of people who know faithful love so well because it is the love we have received from our Savior. We, the church, then, are the ones who, with the Holy Spirit producing fruit in our lives, can point our world to the source of love that does not fail. In closing, there is a story from the Desert Fathers called The Hound and the Deer. One morning, a group of young monks came to speak with an elder monk. They asked him, Father, how can we stay faithful to the end? He responded, once upon a time, there was a hound who found a deer in the forest and started chasing it. A lot of other dogs heard his barking and joined him, and all of them together started chasing after the deer. But after a little while, the hounds who were running, never having actually seen the deer, started asking themselves, where are we going to exactly? Is there really something out there? Why are we doing all this? And little by little, they got tired or they got lost. And one after another, they gave up the hunt. Only the one who was still seeing the deer kept chasing his prey until the end. The elder monk explained, this story is about you following Jesus. You always need a real encounter with him a personal experience of him. Without this, you will not follow him for long. If you keep looking into his eyes, if you stay in his presence, receiving his love, listening to his words, seeking his will, he will keep you faithful. My friends, go. Seek and celebrate God's faithful love to you. And let it spur you to love others faithfully this week. Amen. 